the Pharisees, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, show us Jesus. Help us not to see him the way the Pharisees saw him. Help us to see him as you see him, as he truly is. We can only do that as your spirit opens our eyes, illumines us to the scriptures, or illumines the scriptures for us, shedding light into our hearts. As Father, we are are prone to think of you in a way that is similar to how the Pharisees thought of you, hard and unyielding quite contrary to how you reveal yourself through the scriptures. And so teach us this morning so that we can trust you, rejoice in you, and give you glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most famous lines in literature is, A tu, Brute? In uh, William Shakespeare's little biopic, Uh, Julius Caesar. Um, We're not sure exactly what Julius Caesar said when he was assassinated by Brutus and uh, the other members of the conspiracy against him, Uh, but what we should recognize and take away from this play and the the real event upon which uh, Shakespeare played a little loose with history uh, is that Rome was a place that was familiar with killing with killing people that were perceived to be a threat to power. Because uh, Julius, as emperor, as Caesar, was threatening the power of the Senate, and it was they who ended up taking up knives against him. We're in the midst of a power play here in Mark chapter 3. It's begun in chapter 2, And this is going to be familiar to the people of Rome, and uh, it actually should be fairly familiar to us as we uh, see it in different ways in our own political uh, setting. Uh, But there is sort of that question that begins to arise if you're one of the Romans reading Mark's gospel. Would someone actually dare to kill Messiah, the one who was sent by God? And as we look at this text, I want us to keep in mind the question of Jesus to the Pharisees in the center of it. And we're going to use that as, as how we're going to process what is said in the, or what happens in this event in a, in a synagogue, likely Capernaum, but definitely in Galilee, during the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so the first part of that question uh, that Jesus asks, I'm going to frame it this way, I'm going to you know, redact part of it and get back to it later and, and put those things in and take some, some things out, but is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good to save? That's really the first question that Jesus asks of the Pharisees. And by extension, the people that were also in the synagogue because they're part of the audience there. But here we have, it's another Sabbath day, it's another synagogue, and Mark is 
in this theme of the growing conflict that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees in Galilee. And what triggers this particular conflict is that while it's a Sabbath day, there is a man with a withered hand. We're not sure if it was something that was done by birth, meaning it was... Uh, he was disabled from birth. We don't know if it was something that happened in an injury, perhaps at work, or if it was something that was caused by a disease that came subsequently. But the point is, this man's hand is useless. Now, we've already seen a leper. We've already seen a, a man who was completely paralyzed, and we might think that uh, a hand that doesn't work properly is not a big deal. But if you put yourself into that place, and in that time, it becomes a very big thing. Imagine for a moment pre-industrial society. Imagine for a moment that you live in Galilee, where most of the people were engaged in either agriculture or fishing. What are you going to do for a living? How are your options? when you have a hand that cannot till, that cannot pull on a net or mend a net, suddenly you you seem very vulnerable. Suddenly your options, not just for jobs, but by extension for family, become incredibly limited. And if you're already married, and this is an injury that takes place, or a disease that takes away use of your hand, now you cannot provide for the people that you're supposed to provide for. So this is a guy who, let's not write off his injury as something sort of insignificant, uh, but this is, in fact, very important. And the reason I say that is because we're about to see that the Pharisees wrote it off as something fairly insignificant. To the people who were present at this synagogue, Jesus is initiating the controversy because he calls the man to come forward. It's not just that the man is there, but then Jesus says, come here, come forward. Jesus uh, notices that there's going to be a conflict and Jesus is not backing away from the conflict, but in fact he's engaging in the conflict by calling this man to come forth. And so he asks this question of the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to save? Think about this for a moment. Last week, at the end of our passage, it talks about how Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so, the Lord of the Sabbath is asking for their view of doing good, of showing mercy on the Sabbath day. Basically, he's saying, give me a theology lesson. Or let us see what your theology of this is and whether it actually lines up with God's theology or the Lord of the Sabbath's theology of this. The one in authority is asking the ones who think they are in authority what should happen. In other places we see that Jesus taught that all the law hung on love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, We we read that uh, in one of our uh, parallel texts this morning. 
The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two things hang all of the law and the prophets. The law is about love. If you want to know what love looks like, you're supposed to look at the law. Because the law is love in action. It reveals to us what love is intended to do and not do. For instance, it's so profound that Paul here in Romans 13 says, Owe to no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says in the next chapter that love does no harm to its neighbor. And so love, you can't understand love without the law, and you can't understand the law unless you see it in terms of love. This is part of why Paul says to the Galatians, for in in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. That's what he says matters. That is the crux of the letter to the Galatians, if you want it. Right there, that one phrase is the whole point of the letter to the Galatians. Because they were looking at the wrong thing. So we have to understand that when Jesus is speaking about whether it's lawful, he's also speaking about whether it's loving. They're not opposed, but they're joined together. Jesus asked this man, or tells this man rather, stretch out your hand, that withered hand, that useless hand, that unable to go to work with hand, that unable to caress your wife hand, that unable to hold your child's hand, that hand, stretch it out. He says this because he loves this man. He says this because he's doing good to this man. He says this because he's going to save this man right there in front of everybody. And I think he's not just merely saving his earthly life, but he's saving his eternal life, even though we're not necessarily clued into all of it. But there's more going on here as Jesus restores this man to wholeness, not simply of body, but also of soul, just as we saw with the leper and saw with the paralytic. This is a man who will now be able to work, to provide for himself, to possibly have a family, to love his neighbors, as some of them probably have loved him and providing for him for years. And if we think about this in terms of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day, loved by God, the Lord's Day is a day for us to love God and to love our neighbor and to receive the love of our neighbor. That's part of what it means is that man, uh, sorry, the, the, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Here is a day in which we're reminded of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. It's a day in which we are able to express our reflective love to God in our public worship and private worship. And it's a day in which we're able to express our love to brothers and sisters, our neighbors, and to receive their love back. It's a day for love in many ways. A day like today, a Sabbath day, a Lord's Day, gives us time in order to be with people. So that's why it's good that some of you linger here when we're done. That is fully in keeping with God's intention. So that uh, you don't just come in and get your little spiritual fix and then leave, uh, but you come and you love one another in this place. And for those who go to community group later on today, again, you're doing exactly what God wants you to do because you are in a place where you're now loving one another, bearing one another's burdens as you pray for one another and listen to one another. And you're receiving the love of your brothers and sisters. The Lord's Day is a day to care for people in need. I was encouraged before I went on vacation. It was kind of funny because um, Jack and Amy, their car broke down. And they were pulled off on the side and it was kind of funny because one of our other saints uh, told me that uh, she was distracted by big thoughts and missed her turn. So she was coming to church in a way that she usually does not go. And she was driving by and said, that's Jack and Amy's car, and stopped. Okay? It would have been easy to say, I need to go to church. But love for Jack and Amy, old friends. I'm going to stop and make sure they're okay. Don't know how much time it could be, right? It could be uh, much more than simply getting them in the car and bringing them to church. It could be maybe we miss church. Who knows when you decide to pull over and see what's going on. Love taking place. Then after the service, an officer of the church spending time with them, making sure that they're okay uh, when the tow truck comes. And as it turns out, they have to go with the tow truck to where the garage is because no one's going to be at the garage. And here's this time, time given to make sure that Jack and Amy are okay. Not an avoidance of responsibility, but an appropriate love displayed on the Lord's day. Something which the Pharisees apparently would think would break the Lord's day or break the law on the Lord's day. And so Jesus set apart the Sabbath to do good to people, to express love to people. Let's go to our second kind of Uh, the second part of the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees, and this is the negative side of the question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do harm to kill? Apparently everywhere Jesus went, the Pharisees were sure to follow, just like Mary's little lamb. Especially in the synagogue, but we saw them. I mean, 
there they are watching Jesus and the disciples in the fields, <laughs> plucking the grain last week, right? There, here's the Pharisees again. They're checking out Jesus. But we see that Mark tells us they watched Jesus to see if he would heal the man, not that they might rejoice in the goodness of God, Not that they would rejoice uh, that Jesus is able to do something that they apparently can't do because this man has been coming to this synagogue for who knows how long and no one has been able to heal his hand. And here is Jesus. And they're watching. They're observing. The idea here seems to be paying careful attention to, scrutinizing that they might accuse him. Jesus is the center of their attention because they are like predators waiting to pounce. They're like a lion uh, that is hiding in the grass waiting for the antelope or gazelle to get just close enough so that it can pounce. Sort of like our cat, thinking it's hidden, waiting to pounce upon my dog and bat its tail. Sort of like Cody, the consumer, waiting for that speck of food to fall from the table so he, or the counter so he can get it. That's the picture. That's them. They're looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus. Let's not think it's just the Pharisees. When I was at General Assembly, one of the seminars I took um, was ministry, uh, the politics of ministry. I'm buying the book. That was a great seminar. And I was like, Man, that ended way too soon. Um, actually, I'm waiting for one of my friends to get me the book because one of the authors is in his congregation. So if Bo listens to my sermon, I'm waiting for the book, Bo. <laughs> you promised. Okay? I just talked to Bo this past week, and he didn't mention the book. So, um, <clears throat> But they talked about systems in terms of Um, relaxed systems on the one hand and and what they called anxious systems on the other. And I saw the description of the anxious system and I said, that's our denomination. We are an anxious system right now. We are defensive and we're looking for fault. We're waiting to pounce on each other as a denomination. At least it seems that way when you're in the Facebook groups. Okay. You say the wrong word. There it is, baby. So it's not just the Pharisees that struggle with this problem, but it's Christians who struggle with this problem. One of the proverbs that has been on my heart for months is that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And that's the thing, if your heart is turned against someone, whether they're 
someone you know personally or someone who's in the public square, everything they do, it tends to be seen from the worst possible light as opposed to the best possible light. The Pharisees, because of their hatred, are stirring up strife because everything Jesus does is seen in the worst possible light. They viewed through the because of the Mishnah, okay, which is what they, they took as their um, the proper interpretation of the law. They viewed healing or medical care as breaking the law of the Sabbath unless it was life threatening. That's why I made a big deal about the impact that this hand would have upon this man. They would have said to him, Come back a different day. Come see Jesus. Another day of the week, not today. I know you're here now, but mm, too bad. That's what they would say to him. And that's why they're waiting to pounce on Jesus. In other words, instead of seeing the law as pointing us to how to love, they are, in a sense, using the law as an excuse not to love people who have great need. They are withholding grace from a man in need. They were over-scrupulous about the law and had missed the whole point of the law. They've removed the love from the law so that now it stands more like the penal code of the United States federal government or the local government of Tucson, Pima County, the state of Arizona. Love is not really the root of those laws, but it's the root of God's law. So they're using the law as an excuse to not love people, which is an abomination, if we understand it correctly. The question that Jesus asks them, is it lawful to, on the Sabbath to do harm or do good? So the, the do harm part would be the withholding of grace to this man. But Jesus went even farther to this idea of, of don't kill. And it's, it's a prescient. Because Jesus heals the man. And what do they do? The Pharisees went out and held counsel with the Herodians on how to destroy him. Or kill him. Now remember, who are the Pharisees? We, we talked about the, you know, they were very conservative. Uh, they were sort of, if we could say it, the, the moral majority of their day in, in that place. Uh, they were, you know, a high view of morality. The Herodians, on the other hand, were almost the exact opposite. They were sort of the progressives of the day. Uh, they supported Herod, who was the illegitimate king uh, that Rome had put over them. And so they support Herod, and they support the um, Hellenization or Romanization of Judea. They were the immoral liberals, so to speak, because they took the, the moral ethics 
of Rome and thought they were good. And the moral ethics of Rome were abysmally bad. And so imagine those bedfellows for a second. The people who claim to uh, have the right interpretation of God and have a high moral standard, and then you have uh, the people who are all about enculturalization and being like Rome, and here they are together. Having counsel or deliberating, speaking at length with one another, on a common goal of killing Jesus. And this discussion is taking place on the Sabbath day. Let that sink in for a second. They want to kill a man because he healed a man on the wrong day even though they're talking about killing him on that very same day. They plan to commit evil against a do-gooder. And I think we have to reckon with the fact that those who sometimes look like they keep the Lord's day the best are actually the best at breaking it. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They looked like they were doing it the best. If anyone asked, they were the, who's keeping the Sabbath? Well, it's those Pharisees. I can't stand them. They make me look bad. But when you peel back the layers and see who they really are inside, we see that they are the ones who are breaking it the most. The most profoundly. This flows, really, out of how a person views God and views His law. Is God hard and demanding, or is He, as Jesus said about Himself, humble and gentle? This problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden as Eve is weighing the words of Satan against the words of the Lord. And she begins to think that God does not have my best interest in mind because God is withholding something from me. And she begins to think that God is hard, which means He's hard to please. She has to work really hard to get anything good out of him. Which is exactly what Satan wanted her to think. To forget the goodness, the kindness of God. What does this get back down to? Gets back, gets back down to the reality that self-righteousness hides our horrible sins from our own eyes. It makes us see everyone else's sin, but it hides from us our own. They were really clear about seeing the imagined sins of Jesus, but they could not see 
They were blind to their own sin and Sabbath breaking. And it all gets back to the heart. The heart, which is the source of all our sins. As Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and it's this that defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In the heart of the Pharisees at that moment, as they're plotting, is murder, is false witness, is slander, evil thoughts, corrupting them who thought that they were not corrupt. And we're not all that different too. We can have similar evil thoughts on down the line while telling ourselves that we're in the right. We should tremble. But what we see, to sum up this point, is that Jesus' true righteousness exposes our wicked self-righteousness. Jesus squeezes us like a tube And what was inside, which was invisible to us before, is now visible to us. Our heart becomes visible. And it's not always pretty. Well, those are the two sides of the question of Jesus that stands in the middle of this text. But let's see... How does Jesus react to the Pharisees in light of this? And therefore, by extension, in a sense, how does he, or not extension, hopefully, but how does he deal with our own sin struggle? Because we don't have it all together. Well, when he asks the question of them before he heals the man, they're silent. They don't say anything. In other words, Jesus has silenced them. Jesus has stumped them. They have no answer for for the question that he asks. Rhetorically, he has won the day. But their silence didn't stump Jesus. He knows what's really going on in the midst of their silence. Because Mark tells us he looked around at them because they weren't all necessarily in one place. But he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He knows what's going on behind the silence. He's not stumped by it. We see in Psalm 139, verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And because Jesus is fully God, he knows these words, even though they never reach the tongues of these men. He knows their heart. Paul, in Romans 2, declares that the secrets of men will be revealed and they will be judged on the last day according to his gospel. 
The author of Hebrews reminds us that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. It's not just the Pharisees in that synagogue on that day in Galilee 2,000 years ago. But it's all people everywhere. He knows. Those things you think about other people that no one else knows, he knows. The secrets of all people's hearts will be revealed eventually, but God does know them now. And how, what is Jesus' response to this? The first part of his response is anger, which indicates to us, once again, just in case you didn't know, that anger in and of itself is not sinful. It's more about why you're angry and how you're angry, the way it manifests itself. Okay, But anger itself is not sinful, though it can be. That's part of why we're told in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Which, for us sinners, is really hard to do. Okay? And Paul is just quoting one of the Psalms when he says that. Jesus is angry at their sin. God hates sin. Jesus is angry at their withholding of love to a friend or a brother in need. Because they may, who knows? We don't know. They may personally know this guy. The scripture does not tell us. But Jesus is also grieved or saddened. Our emotional lives can be complex. We can have conflicting emotions at the same time. We can be mad and sad at the same time, just like Jesus is right here. He's mad and sad. But what he's sad about is their condition, the fact that they are hard-hearted, the fact that they are resisting Jesus and the gospel. That, that they are, like they are so often described in the prophets like Jeremiah, uh, they, they're walking in their own counsels, it says in Jeremiah 7. They're, they're walking in the stubbornness of their evil hearts. They don't incline their ear to hear. Remember, they're not listening to Jesus, they're waiting to pounce upon Jesus. Their hearts are uncircumcised, if we take that language of Deuteronomy 30 seriously. The disciples of Jesus are also intended to have, I think, this complex emotional response to sin. It should anger us and grieve us. Thankfully, there is a promise that God gave in Deuteronomy 30, is not the only place, but this is a a clear place, uh, that he was going to circumcise the heart of his people and their children. As a paedo-baptist, I love that phrase. God's concerned about multiple generations, and that promise is not just the, the, you know, you, but it's you and your children, so that you love God you and your children, 
when he circumcises hearts. The whole purpose of having the circumcised heart was so that they would love God with all their heart and soul. So that their children would love God with all their heart and soul. And so that they would then begin to have the proper righteousness, not the false righteousness of the Pharisees. And so our hope in being freed from our own self-righteousness is this promise of a circumcised heart from Deuteronomy 30. That Jesus not only pardons us, uh, but cuts back the stubbornness of our heart so that we're, our hearts are now tender toward Him and we're able to love Him because we've been loved first. As we see in 1 John 3, as Rick read. We see this promise similarly in Ezekiel 36 as God removes the heart of stone from within us and gives us this heart of flesh and gives us His Spirit so that we begin to walk in His ways. And so God is at work so that we grow in walking in His ways, which is the way of love. The right way of righteousness is the way of love. They're not opposed to each other. Jesus promises not only to pardon or grant forgiveness, justification, but also a solution to our heart problem in sanctification. We're like Mark Ressler, former pastor, retired pastor at Catalina Foothills, who needed a heart transplant. We all needed heart transplants. The heart of stone that uncircumcised heart of stone removed and the circumcised heart of flesh put in its place by God's working alone. The death that these men plotted and committed eventually, later on, was actually the sin-bearing atonement for sin that God had planned. This saw that the man was saved, not just healed. This saw that the persecuting Paul was saved, not judged. And it's the same for us. And so there was power, wonder-working power, in the blood of the Lamb. That He purifies us from the sin in our hearts, but He also changes our hearts over time. And first we have to face our heart. We have to recognize that even as Christians, we can still be more like the Pharisees than we want to admit. And that's where Zach Eswin talks about the gospel waltz. And I've talked about it numerous times, and it's been a little while since I've mentioned that, that gospel waltz, that one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Confess the way in which you fall short. Not just the actions, but also the sinfulness of your heart. That's one. Two, receive the fullness of what Jesus offers. Not simply the pardon, but also as Calvin talks about Christ Himself so that we become like Jesus. And three, by faith begin to walk in it. That's not something that happens once. That's meant to be 
the regular pattern of life. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And as you can see, I'm really horrible at dancing. <laughs> and I'm horrible at repenting. I sometimes trip over my feet, so to speak. And so will you. And that's okay. But God calls us to dance. The dance of confession, of faith and repentance and believing, and then walking with him and his power, and not our own power. So we see that Jesus died so that we can have hearts of flesh. That's really the third part of this. And if I was to kind of try and wrap all of it up and put a bow on it, it would be that Jesus changes our hearts so that we do good in Sabbath rest. If the Sabbath was made for man, we should do good and love one another. Or should we use the Sabbath as an excuse to withhold love and do harm? That's really the question that that kind of this, this whole passage is centered around. The Pharisees went even further. They plotted the death of Jesus. But we see that Jesus dies to bear the curse of our own hate-filled, selfish Sabbath-breaking. Jesus offers us not only pardon, but also a new circumcised heart that seeks to love God, that loves His law, and sees it as a way of loving Him and one another. And this seemingly, perhaps, unimportant discussion about a guy with a crippled hand reveals hearts. Most importantly, it reveals the heart of Jesus which is in fact full of pity and power, goodness and gentleness. He is a God who is for his people, not one who is out to ruin your life. Let's pray. Father, if we didn't have this text, we wouldn't know this about you. And we wouldn't know this about your son because we tend to make you in our own image and you'd end up looking like the gods of the Greeks full of sin, pettiness, jealousy and all the rest but we thank you that you revealed to to us that you are holy, righteous infinite in goodness unsearchable in wisdom Continue to teach us about that because we have a hard time learning it. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.